This is a Federal News Network podcast. Thousands of federal employees will likely see bigger paychecks starting in 2024. The president's pay agent approved four new pay locality areas that were recommended by the Federal Salary Council. And once again, the pay agent is calling for major legislative reforms to the federal pay system overall. Here with details, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And just review for us, Drew, if you would, pay locality, locality pay, what does that all mean? Right. Typically, each year, federal employees will get a pay raise in January. It's composed of a base pay percentage plus a locality pay percentage. So, for example, in 2023, it'll almost certainly be a 4.6% pay raise, which is a 4.1% base pay that everyone gets, and then a 0.5% piece for locality pay, which may be slightly lower or higher depending on where you live. That 0.5% is an average among everyone. So at the end of the calculation, you, your raise might be a couple tenths of a percent lower or higher than 46 Currently, there are 54 locality areas in the U.S., including a rest of U.S. category that kind of encompasses areas that don't have their own pay locality. But each one has its own raise percentage based on the local living conditions that are there. Sure. And the localities themselves sometimes change. A county might get added or some township might sort of get absorbed by one locality. I'm wondering what's left after after all the pay locality areas. And what are the new ones? There are four new pay localities that were proposed by the Federal Salary Council and then approved by the president's pay agent, which is composed of leaders from the Office of Personnel Management, Office of Management and Budget, and the Labor Department. So the four new areas are Fresno, California, Reno, Nevada, Rochester, New York, and Spokane, Washington. But it is noteworthy to say that these cannot go into effect until at least January 2024 at the earliest because there still need to be regulations issued around them. So don't expect that for 2023. So you've got the pay agent getting recommendations from the Federal Salary Council What did the pay agents say about those recommendations, the other ones besides the locality, from the council? They had seven recommendations total to the president's pay agent. In addition to the new pay locality areas that were approved, the pay agent actually agreed with pretty much all of the recommendations from the council. One of the other recommendations was to expand existing pay locality areas. As you said, that is something that happens pretty regularly. So there are a couple new ones for that, just new counties that are touching existing locality areas being added to those localities. There, Another recommendation from them was to add 10 new research areas. So what a research area means is that they're going to be, the salaries in those areas will be evaluated further, and those could potentially become new localities of their own in the future. There are more that the council wanted to put on the list than just 10, but that was the cap due to Uh, just budget and work restraints from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. But it is noteworthy that two of those research areas were Reno, Nevada and Rochester, New York, which will most likely become their own new pay localities at this point. But since they're not official yet, they'll remain research areas for now. Yeah, I don't know about Reno, but my experience with Rochester, New York, is it is a city on the comeback after kind of peaking industrially in the 1960s, long decline coming back. I guess that means it's getting more expensive to live there. And this issue of federal versus non-federal pay, the gap, 
which can work in both directions, came up again in this latest report. Review for us what that report said. So this report said that the pay gap continues to widen each year, saying that basically federal pay is falling further and further behind non-federal pay. So, for example, in 2021, the gap was 22.5 percent. 2022, it was 24%, so it went up a little bit. But, you know, this is something that is debated. There are other groups or organizations that say that the way that they calculate the difference is based on wages alone and doesn't account for the role of benefits. Others say that, you know, federal pay is actually ahead when you consider all of that. But from these two entities themselves, they say that it is falling further and further behind. And they have called on Congress then to look at this whole thing and maybe reform the whole pay system, which they have called on Congress repeatedly to do. Exactly. That is not really a new call from the president's pay agent. It's something that they have said for at least the last several years, major legislative reforms are needed. But in the report, they don't exactly say what those would be, just that there's something that needs to be looked into. But they're basically pointing to the outdated system, the general schedule pay system for federal employees that covers 1.5 million federal employees. But they say there's just inherent issues with the way it's structured. For example, that it doesn't consider different types of occupations within a local labor market. So it basically just locality pay only looks at the geographical region for something and not how wages might differ based on what the occupation actually is. Yeah, I mean, these are real questions, because if you take a look, the common example is attorneys. You know, in Washington, D.C., there are lawyers that get $1,000 an hour billing, some $1,200 an hour at this point. I read that the fellow that is taking over the FTX scandal and trying to unwrap that for the bankruptcy court is billing $1,300 an hour to recover billions of dollars, perhaps. So if you are a Justice Department prosecutor or something, you might be going up against a defense attorney that bills at 1000 an hour. That's, that's one example. But then there's a lot of jobs, program managers, mid-level managerial types, very hard to compare what's going on in the private sector. And by the way, there are lawyers that are pretty cheap out on the podunk that don't make as much as a federal lawyer. So not an easy question, let's, I think it's fair to say. Right. I mean, if you think about it, it's and it's not even just occupation that is the the question that they're pointing to. I mean, there have been advocacy groups that say there's other problems, too. For example, pay compression is something that people have raised concerns about at, at more senior level positions in the federal workforce, just because, according to federal statute, salaries for career federal employees can't exceed those for political appointees on the executive schedule. Sure. And because there's a pay freeze for them. There's a pay cap for some on in, on the career side as well. So that's another issue where we've seen some some calls to for legislative reforms there as well. Yeah, that compression issue is real. You could be a CIO and oversee billions of dollars worth of IT spending, and you get your $150,000, $157,000 a year, year after year. And you could participate in a trade association, you know, extracurricular, where the director of that association is getting five, $600,000 a year. And, and yeah, you're exactly. the one doing the work <laughs> of the public. So, yes, uh, I can see why these questions come up. In the meantime, there is that 4.6% pay raise proposed for 2023, as you and I spoke about the other day. Congress didn't say anything about that, which means it can go ahead. What is left then before that paycheck 
rays will come through. There's really just one step left. There is no legislative alternative, as you said. So Biden would just have to sign an executive order by the end of December to make that official to start in January next year. All right. Well, we know you'll be on top of it. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And by the way, Drew is going to rejoin us in the next hour for a look back at the top federal employment stories of the past year. Check out all of her reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in d- direct care, and and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know I'll take a look at it and see, see you know throw send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. and you know, uh, Terrell, who who works in in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's you know getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has a has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And 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 you think of I I you know often when you'll walk away, I'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out. And come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he, he he faces everything with optimism, and 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally. You see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents when they were born were often told this is a tragedy, and you should you should you know send your this child away. Don't don't you know and, and kind of forget about them. Get, turn them over to the state or or wherever, and and you know that you know just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and 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 in in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know. And but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming, and uh, and and you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through 
all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day. But uh, man, you see, it, it, and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yeah. is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, it's not just school age. It's it's, uh, you know, we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the greatest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. 
Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll uh, talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.